Microsoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Sir Gibby, Episode 2, Sir George. The sun was hot for an hour or two in the middle of the day, but even though in the shadow dwelt a cold breath, but even then in the shadow dwelt a cold breath of the winter or of death of something that humanity felt unfriendly. To Gibby, however, bare-legged, barefooted, almost bare-bodied as he was, sun or shadow made small difference except as one of the musical intervals of life that make the melody of existence. His bare feet knew the difference on the flags, and his heart recognized unconsciously the secret, as it were, of a meaning and a symbol, and the change from the one to the other. But he was almost as happy in the doll as in the bright day. Hardy through hardship, he knew nothing better than a constant good-humored spiring with nature and circumstance, for the privilege of being, enjoyed what came to him thoroughly, never mourned over what he had not, and like the animals, was at peace, who do not look before and after, and pine for what is not, but live it all now. To Gibby, the city was always show. He knew many of the people, some of them who thought no small things of themselves, better than they would have chosen he or anyone else, should know them. He knew all the peripatetic vendors, most of the bakers, most of the small grocers and tradespeople. He was laying a, in a great stock for the time when he would be something more, for the time of reflection, whenever that might come. Chiefly, his experience was a wonderful provision for the future perception of character. For now he knew to a nicety how any one of his large acquaintance would behave to him in circumstances within the scope of that experience. In any such poor boy rises in the scale of creation, he carries with him from the street an amount of material serving to the knowledge of human nature, human need, human aims, human relations in the business of life, such as hardly another can possess. Even the poet, greatly wise in virtue of his sympathy, will scarcely understand a given human condition so well as the man whose five tentacles have been in contact with it for years. When Gibbie was not looking in at a shop window, or turning on one heel to take in all at a sweep, he was oftenest seen trotting. Seldom he walked. A gentle trot was one of his natural modes of being. And though this day he had been on the trot all the sunshine through, nevertheless, when the sun was going down there, was wee Gibby upon the trot in the chilling and darkening streets. He had not had much to eat. He had been very near having a penny loaf, half a cookie, which a stormy child had thrown away to ease his temper, had done further and perhaps better service in easing Gibby's hunger. The green grocer woman at the entrance of the court, where his father lived, a good way down the same street in which he had found the lost earring, had given him a small yellow turnip to Gibby nearly as welcome as an apple. A fishwife from Finstone, with a creel on her back, had given him all his hands could hold of the seaweed called doss, presumably not from its sweetness, although it is good eating. She had added to the gift a small crab, but that he had carried to the seashore and set free, because it was alive. These, the half-cookie, the turnip, and the doss. 
with the smell of the baker's bread, was all he had had. It had been rather one of his meager days. But it is wonderful upon how little those rare natures capable of making the most of things will live and thrive. There is a great deal more to be got out of things than is generally got out of them. Whether the thing be a chapter of the Bible or a yellow turnip, and the marvel is that those who use the most material should so often be those that show the least result in strength or care. Truly Gibby got no fat out of his food, but he got what was far better, what he carried, I can hardly say under or in, but along with those rags of his was all muscle, small but hardy and healthy, and nodding up like whipcord. There are all degrees of health in poverty as well as in riches, and Gibby's health was splendid. His senses also were marvelously acute. I have already hinted at his gift for finding things. His eyes were sharp, quick, and roving, and then they went near the ground. He was such a little fellow. His success, however, did not all these considerations could well account for, but he was regarded as born with a special luck in finding. I doubt if sufficient weight was given to the fact that even when he was not so turning his mind, it strayed in that direction, whence it, if any object cast its reflection rays on his retina, those rays never failed to reach his mind also. On one occasion he picked up the pocketbook a gentleman had just dropped, and in mingled fun and delight, was trying to put it in his, its own owner's pocket unseen when he collared him, and had it not been for the testimony of a young woman who, coming behind, had seen the whole, would have handed him over to the police. After all, he remained in doubt. The thing seemed so incredible. He did give him a penny, however, which Gibby at once spent upon a loaf. It was not from any notions of honesty. He knew nothing about it that he always did what he could to restore the things he found. The habit came from quite another cause. When he had no clue to the owner, he carried the thing found to his father, who generally let it lie a while, and at length, if it was of nature convertible, turned it into drink. While Gibby thus lived in the streets like a town sparrow, as like a human bird without storehouse or barn, as boy could well be, the human father of him would all day be sitting in a certain dark court as hard at work as an aching head would afford. The said court was off the narrowest part of a long, poverty-stricken street, bearing a name of evil, for it was called the Witty Hill, the place of the gallows. It was entered by a low archway in the middle of the, an old house, around which yet clung a musty frame departed grandeur and ancient note. In the court against a wing of the same house rose an outside stair leading to the first floor. Under the stair was a rickety wooden shed, and in the shed sat the father of Gibbie, and cobbled boots and shoes as long as, at this time of the year, the light lasted. Up that stairs, and two more inside the house, he went to his lodging, for he slept in the garret. But when or how he got to bed, George Galbraith never knew, for then, invariably, he was drunk. In the morning, however, he always found himself in it, generally with an aching head, and always with a mingled disgust and desire for drink. During the day, alas, the disgust departed while the desire remained, and strengthened with the approach of evening. All day he worked with might and main, such might and main as he had, worked as if for his life, 
and all to procure the means of death. No one ever sought to treat him, and from no one would he accept drink. He was a man of such inborn honesty that the usurping of a vow thirst had not even yet, at the age of forty, been able to cast it out. The last little glory cloud was trailing behind him, but yet it trailed. Doubtless it needs but time to make of a drunkard a thief, but not yet. Even when longing was at the highest, would he have stolen a forgotten glass of whiskey, and still often in spite of sickness and aches innumerable, George labored that he might have wherewith to make himself drunk honestly, strange honestly. Lee Gibby was his only child, but about him or his well-being he gave himself almost as little trouble as Gibby caused him. Not that he was hard-hearted. If he had seen the child in want, he would have at the drunkest have shared his whiskey with him. If he had fancied him cold, he would have put his last garment upon him. But to his whiskey-dimmed eyes, the child scarcely seemed to want anything. And the thought never entered his mind that while Gibbie always looked, smiled, and contented, his father did so little to make him so. He had at the same time a very low opinion of himself and his deservings, and justly, for his consciousness had dwindled into little more than a live thirst. He did not do well for himself, neither did men praise him, and he shamefully neglected his child, but in one respect, and that a most important one, he did well by his neighbors. He gave the best of work, and made the lowest of charges. Many a fair professor, as Bunyan calls him, a grasping merchant ranks infinitely lower than such a drunken cobbler. Thank God, the Son of Man is the judge, and to him will we plead the cause of such, yea, and of worse than they, for he will do right. Enemy, let us try to understand George Galbraith, his very existence, the sense of a sunless, dreary, cold-winded desert. He was evermore confronted, in all his resolves after betterment, by the knowledge that with the first eager mouthful of the strange element, a rosy dawn would begin to flush the sky, a mist of green to cover the arid waste, a wind of song to ripple the air, and at length the misery of the day would vanish utterly, and the night throb with dreams, for George was by nature no common man. At heart he was a poet, weak enough, but capable of endless delight. The time had been when now and then he read a good book, and dreamed noble dreams. Even yet the stuff of which may, such dreams are made fluttered in parti-collared rags about his life, and collar is collar even on a scarecrow. He had had a good father, and his mother was a man of some character, both intellectually and socially. Now and then it is too true he had terrible bouts of drinking, but all the time between he was perfectly sober. He had given his son more than a fair education, and George, for his part, had trotted through the curriculum of Elphinstone College, not altogether without distinction. But beyond this, his father had entirely neglected his future, not even revealing to him the fact of which, indeed, he was himself but dimly aware, that from willful oversight on his part, and design on that of others, his property had all but entirely slipped from his possession. While his father was yet alive, George married the daughter of a small laird in a neighboring county, a woman of some education and great natural refinement. He took her home to the ancient family house in the city, the same in which he now occupied a garret, and under whose outer stair he now cobbled shoes. There, during his father's life, they lived in peace and tolerable comfort, though in a poor enough way. 
It was all even then that the wife could do to make both ends meet, nor would her relations, whom she had grievously offended by, afford her the smallest assistance. Even then, too, her husband was on the slippery incline, but as long as she lived, she managed to keep him within the bounds of what is called respectability. She died, however, soon after Gibby was born, and then George began to lose himself altogether. The next year his father died, and creditors appeared who claimed everything. Mortgaged land and houses, with all upon and in them, were sold, and George left without a penny or any means of winning a livelihood, while already he had lost the reputation that might have introduced him to employment. For heavy work he was altogether unfit, and had it not been for a bottle companion, a merry hard-drinking shoemaker, he would have died of starvation or sunk into beggary. This man taught him his trade, and George was glad enough to work at it, both to deaden the stings of conscience and memory, and to procure the means of deadening them still further. But even here was something in the way of improvement, for hitherto he had applied himself to nothing, his being one of those dreamful natures, capable of busy exertion for a time, but ready to collapse into disgust with every kind of effort. How Gibby had got thus far alive was a puzzle not a creature could have solved. It must have been by charity and ministration of more than one humble woman, but no one now claimed any particular interest in him except Mrs. Crowell, and hers was not very tender. It was a sad sight to some eyes to see him roving the streets, but an infinitely sadder sight was his father, even when bent over his work, with his hands and arms and knees, going as if for very salvation. What thoughts might then be visiting this poor, worn-out brain, I cannot tell, but he looked the pale picture of misery, doing his best to restore to service the nearly shapeless boots of Carter or Baker. He was himself fast losing the very idea of his making, consumed heart and soul with his thirst, for the thirst of the drunkard is even more of the soul than of the body. When the poor fellow sat with his drinking companions in Mistress Crowell's parlor, seldom a flash broke from the revere in which he seemed sunk, to show in what region of fancy his mind wandered, or to lighten the dullness that would not unfrequently invade. Yet those drinking companions would have missed George Galbraith, silent as he was, and but poorly responsive to the wit and humor of the rest, for he was always courteous, always ready to share what he had, never looking beyond the present tumbler, altogether a genial, kindly, honest nature. Sometimes, when two or three of them happened to meet elsewhere, they would fall to wondering why the salad man sought their company, seeing he both contributed so little to the hilarity of the evening, and seemed to derive so little enjoyment from it. But I believe their company was necessary as well as the drink to enable him to elude his conscience and feast with his imagination. Was it that he knew they also fought misery by investments in her bonds, and therefore felt at home? with his own. Thank you for listening to another episode of Agersaw Story Classic.